You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Fancy Bear has its very own root kit. VPN filter turns out to do a lot more than previously suspected. One of the Salisbury assassins is identified as a GRU colonel. A voice recorder app is kicked out of Google Play for being a banking trojan. Apple's device enrollment program may have authentication issues. Big tech might learn to like being regulated. And farewell to one of Bletchley Park's Jenny Wrens. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, September 27th, 2018. There are a few Fancy Bear sightings to report today. You'll recall that Fancy Bear is what Russia's GRU has come to be called when it operates in cyberspace. Or, if you insist, Mr. Putin, Russia's GU, since, ho-ho, there's strictly speaking no such thing as the GRU because its name got changed and anyway it doesn't exist. We say phooey. Whatever the acronym, it's the same old firm, and we doubt the misdirection works even at the U.N. So tell it to Turtle Bay, or save it for a meteor shower over Shaliabinsk, but no one here is buying. Security firm ESET, the gang from Bratislava, reported yesterday that Fancy Bear is deploying a rootkit against its foreign targets. They're active so far mostly in the Balkans and other Central and Eastern European countries, and the kit they've deployed is Lojax, malware developed from the Lojack anti-theft software. The attribution to Fancy Bear is, as is usually the case, circumstantial, but compelling, based on the presence of other known Fancy Bear hacking tools. Cisco's Talos unit looked into VPN filter malware and has discovered that it's even more capable than initially believed. The researchers found seven additional modules in VPN filter, They think it was designed to debut against Ukrainian targets on the anniversary of the NotPetya attacks, but they also note that VPN filter was also designed to be a long-term attack platform. The malware is particularly adapted for IoT attacks, especially against vulnerable routers. When Talos started checking on VPN filter this spring, it was hitting home routers, mostly those manufactured by Microtik. At the time, the U.S. FBI attributed the campaign to Fancy Bear, took control of some of its command and control infrastructure, and advised everyone to reboot their routers. It's difficult to say how many devices remain vulnerable, but VPN filter turns out to be more capable than hitherto believed. The seven new modules include an HTTP traffic redirection and inspection tool, an SSH utility, some network mapping functionality, a denial-of-service tool, a network traffic forwarding unit, a SOX5 proxy, and a reverse TCP VPN. So it does a lot. And one of the suspects in the Salisbury nerve agent attacks has been identified as a GRU colonel. Both of the men British authorities hold responsible for the nerve agent attack in Salisbury have so far been known by their pseudonyms, Ruslan Bosharov and Alexander Petrov. Bosharov turns out to be one GRU colonel, Anatoly Chepiga, an officer thrice deployed to Chechnya during 17 years' service as a Spetsnaz goon. He was also awarded the Order Hero of the Russian Federation in 2014 by decree from the Russian president for peacekeeping, which probably means hybrid warfare against Ukraine. 
The investigative site Bellingcat, which did much of the inquisitorial heavy lifting here, says that Chepiga's alma mater, the Far Eastern Military Command School, has his name in the award up on their wall of honor. His mention is to the right of their statue of Marshal Rakosovsky. It's worth noting that the honorific hero of the Russian Federation is by custom awarded personally by the Russian president, the way the U.S. Medal of Honor is normally presented by the U.S. president. This would seem to deprive President Putin of some deniability he's hitherto claimed. Fact is, he probably pinned the medal on Chepiga personally. Chepika's fellow tourist, Alexander Petrov, has yet to be identified. We live in a world with Twitter bots, fake and stolen Facebook profiles, and even automated AI-driven customer service chatbots. As the technology matures, it's getting hard to be sure you're dealing with a real human being. This notion of synthetic identities is cause for concern and attention. Daniel Riedel is CEO of data security firm New Context, and he offers these thoughts. I think with synthetic identities, uh, it depends on the industry that you're in to a certain extent. I think the banking industry has their concept of what synthetic identities are. I think other industries do as well. Um, obviously, with the banking industry, it's it has to do with you know sort of fraudulent uses of of, of payment systems. Um, but I think that synthetic identities is going to grow and morph in ways that, in some cases, we don't we can't foresee. Um, it's sort of the unknown unknown concept, but I think it's going to have a huge effect on how we trust um, an entity that we have not seen in person. Uh, basically, right? So anything where we can't absolutely validate that um, it is a human that I'm actually talking to. And from your point of view today, uh, where we stand, I mean, how do you define it in the present context? So today, I think that uh, I think you you could say that, you know, some of the Twitter bots that are out there are synthetic identities. I think that I would look to see a little bit more sophistication. Um, so, you know, LinkedIn accounts that are false, but look absolutely real, like you can't you can't tell the difference, but they're they are fake or a Facebook account that is fake or um, sort of a what we're seeing now, especially with some of the announcements with Google, you know, a, a conversation that you if you cannot perceive that there's a human, not a human on the other side, like it's a it's a bot that's talking to you and you can't you cannot make the distinction of whether that's a human or a bot. I think that's really the, the fit for where synthetic identity is. A lot of those Twitter bots, you can you can absolutely you know it's a, it, you know it's a bot. You can see it; it's a bot. It's when it's very hard for your average um, person to make the uh, distinction between the, is this a bot or is this a human? I don't know. I can't tell. Yeah, and I think we've seen uh, cases of this with uh, things like romance scams, where people have, uh, you know, sort of vacuumed up someone else's online profile and somewhere like Facebook, and uh, assumes their identity and uh, uses it to scam unwitting people. Absolutely, and I think you're going to see. So uh, there's the age-old fraud that we've seen since the dawn of email, where somebody wants you to wire ten thousand dollars suddenly because you know they're in a bad spot in the middle of Africa. The synthetic identity allows it to be a little more challenging to really understand uh, whether that's real or not. And so I think with with anything, especially when it comes to financial transactions, um, it's always you know 
making sure that you really know the other party before you do anything. Yeah, you know, I think of the example that we've seen uh, in the past few months, where you know Google had a a technology demonstration where they showed uh, you know an artificial intelligence that was uh, ordering up a, a haircut appointment for someone, uh, and so I think you know I, the certainly the possibility is there. You can you can look forward and see how that could be uh, a useful uh, application of this sort of thing, um, and yet I I feel like folks. Uh, there's just there's that uncanny valley problem. I think there's we we just can't help having a sense that at a certain level sometimes these things are just a little creepy. Yeah, it's like a Black Mirror episode. You know, <laughs> it's uh, you you're kind of in this new world that we weren't quite sure where. If I picked up the phone and I had a conversation with somebody, I'm almost positive that's a human being. We're going to go into a world where that may not be the case anymore, um, especially if you extrapolate out. And so the question is, from sort of a policy perspective, you know, are we going to have to have policy where if a customer support calls up and it's a very well-written AI that you can have a conversation with, does it should it say, hi, I am actually not a real person, but I'm here to help you. Um, and therefore, those folks who don't do that, you know, it's a little easier to compartmentalize and, and possibly make it so law enforcement can go after them. I don't know... Um, you know, quite the where that's going to go. Uh, regulation isn't necessarily all the way, always the best way to uh, approach something. But I think, you know, those organizations that um, put their best foot forward and think about that before anyone on the regulation side thinks about that, I think that would be a good thing. That's Daniel Riedel from New Context. Returning to some other ESET research, the company says it found a banking trojan masquerading as a call recording app in Google's Play Store. The bad app was called Q Recorder. Google has given it the heave-ho. Duo Security reports finding an authentication weakness in Apple's device enrollment program that could be exploited for privilege escalation or rogue device deployment. Part of the problem is that a device serial number, and that's a predictable number according to Duo, well, it can be used to enroll a device. Duo recommends that enterprises protect themselves by requiring user authentication before mobile device management enrollment. They notified Apple of what they found, but Apple has yet to address the matter. It thus falls into that familiar, that's a known issue, category. Yesterday's hearings in the U.S. Senate covered online privacy. Big Tech expressed general approval of privacy regulations. Some of the GDPR's requirements are onerous, but big tech likes consistency and predictability. So while in some ways regulation isn't really welcome, it does have some upsides for those who fall under it. Privacy laws and possible antitrust actions continue to loom over Silicon Valley. Finally, it's worth remembering our heroes, and one such received a last farewell Monday. Jean Briggs Waters, who died last week at the age of 92, was laid to rest at the Omaha National Cemetery. She was buried with a Union Jack over her casket and honors from Her Majesty's government. Miss Briggs was one of the last surviving Bletchley Park bomb operators who ran the code-breaking machines that yielded up German signals during the Second World War. She enlisted in the Rens, the Women's Royal Naval Service, at the age of 18 out of an art school in Cambridge, during the war, she fell in love with an American Army Air Force pilot, John Waters. They married, and after the war, settled in Nebraska. Mr. Waters died in June at the age of 101, and this week, Jean was laid beside him. Thank you, Miss Briggs, and may you rest in peace.
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Mike Benjamin. He's the Senior Director of Threat Research at CenturyLink. Mike, welcome back. Um, You know, we've seen plenty of stories come by about Spectre, Meltdown, and most recently, Foreshadow. Uh, And there's been a lot of uh, teeth gnashing and hand-wringing over that. But um, you wanted to make the point today that maybe it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah, I mean, any bug that hits our industry or, or puts anybody at risk is, it's of course interesting and people need to understand it. They need to patch it or mitigate it as the case may be. Um, but if we look at the class of bugs, these are really very difficult to exploit when you compare to what we were looking at 10, 20 years ago, right? The Gone are the days of a simple buffer overflow in a privileged application on an internet-facing service. The fact that we're getting into this complexity of chips really, really shows how much we've matured as an industry. So I, I actually think it's a good opportunity to step back, look at it, and be be proud of what we've been able to accomplish in terms of maturity to technology and software, and, and look at these bugs as not all a bad thing. What do you say to the folks who uh, who make the case that this is a result of the chip makers not being able to uh, increase clock speeds fast enough that, uh, you know, market pressure still means that they, they wanted to do things faster. So, you know, they went back to the computer science books and they came, came up with these, uh, they, they dug out these speculative processing routines and uh, without maybe giving it the, um, the closer look that it deserved. Well, I, th- I think that's a little unfair. You can look at any technology advancement we've made in any area and probably point to some security issue that came out of it. Mm. And so this is part of evolving technology, right? And so academia has brought us some interesting methodologies in order to receive increased execution speed. And, and I don't think we should criticize necessarily everything they do. On the flip side, 
from a chip manufacturer perspective, this is a great opportunity to learn from the experience and, and think about how to properly vet these technologies in the future. So it, it's a maturity item, and, and the pendulum will swing both ways. We're going to have advancements. We're going to learn from them. And then hopefully we mature to the point where things like the class of bug that, that gets provided by speculative execution really is no longer going to be an issue after we learn from it in future spins of this technology. Yeah. So, uh, you know, meanwhile, here in the real world, uh, for folks who have to deal with this, should they be worried? What, what, what's an appropriate level of concern people should have with this? Well, my recommendation to everyone that's asked me has been be aware of what it is. And so the concept of retrieving information through these bugs is a risk to certain organizations and certain environments. And of course, the environments that get mentioned most from the publicity that these bugs receive is always the shared multi-tenant cloud environments. Hmm. The, the infrastructure as a service provider environments is where other people's data is running on, running on the same chip. It's uh, being stored in the same system. And that's where the risk is. And so reaching out to the service providers that offer those technologies, ensuring that they've patch their environments or mitigated in an appropriate way so that you're not at risk it is an appropriate reaction. From, from other cases, either the data being stored is not as at, at high of risk, or they're in their own private environments where they need to be aware more of other security issues in front of this and need to allow the natural patching cycle to occur inside their company. Mike Benjamin, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.